Welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today, Abacus Media writes Jonathan Ford, Bossanova Media's Paul Heaney and Hattrick International's Sarah Tong discuss this year's London TV screenings, speculation about the future of MIP TV and the sale of all three media. And Ukrainian producer Katerina Laskari on how the local film and TV business has adapted to life two years on from the Russian invasion. The fourth annual London TV screenings gets underway next week, with buyers from all around the world in the UK capital to screen the latest shows from founding distributors All Three Media International, Banerjee Rights, Fremantle and ITV Studios, and a growing host of others. The event, which has coalesced around BBC Studios' annual showcase, this year sees Disney join new E1 owner Lionsgate, NBC Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Fox and Sony in making up the full complement of US studios as these players return to the licensing fray with a vengeance in the wake of recalibrated streamer strategies. The industry remains in a period of tumult following last year's Hollywood strikes, with job cuts hitting media companies big and small, commissioning budgets being trimmed and mergers and acquisitions still happening amongst all of this. All Three Media is set to become part of private investment company Redbird IMI following a recently announced £1.15 billion deal, while Fremantle is buying a Satcher Media Group for some €200 million. Meanwhile, the London TV screenings is proving such a pull that the organisers of MIP TV in Cannes in April are reportedly considering relocating their confab and bringing it forward to coincide. There's a lot to discuss, and so today I'm delighted to be joined by Abacus Media Rights Managing Director Jonathan Ford, Bossa Nova Media Chief Executive Paul Heaney, and Hattrick International Sales Chief Sarah Tong, all involved in this year's event to chew over these topics. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's the fourth annual London TV screenings. All very exciting. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about, a lot to cover. Um, I think all of you have been involved since probably the the second year, the first year after it was a, a virtual event for the launch. So um, it's been growing pretty considerably since then. How are things shaping up for this year? What's new? What are you excited about? Well, I think this year it's way busier than it has been last year and obviously the the, the years prior to that. Um, and obviously there's there's the influx of American studios that are taking over some of the time slots as well so there's a lot i think it's a very difficult week for buyers having to with a lot of clashing between different distributors but i mean personally from our front point of view we enjoy this market because it's a different way for us to present our programming rather than the one-on-one presentations that you would do when you go on a sales trip or at the mipcoms and the nappies of the world but it's it seems like there's a really good cross of people coming from outside of Europe as well as across Europe, which is important. Great. Thanks, Sarah. Paul, Jonathan, give us your uh, opening thoughts on London screenings for, mm. for 2024. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, I, I would say I agree completely with, with Sarah that we're seeing a, a much wider range of buyers coming to the market, um, you know, from Asia as well, who've been more reticent with pandemic issues, et cetera, until recent years. But, you know, there's a particularly good attendance from there. And I think what is also, if you think the, the London screening started off with a bit of a drama focus, but now they've become very clearly both drama and unscripted. So, uh, you know, both of those audiences are, are coming to the market and, you know, they are actively, many of them coming 
days earlier than the screenings actually start um, to do those meetings. So I think this is really building into an interesting time and it's in a nice position in the market year, if you think about it, right at the beginning of what's many people's financial year. Um, you know, uh, a number of businesses start in January of the financial year, or even if they start in April. Um, so it's a good time of year where they sort of just learning their budgets. Budgets have been a little bit delayed because of the market challenges, shall we say, but I think people are beginning to work out their budgets now. So I'm hoping that this will be the positive light that the whole market needs to see. That's right. Yeah, no, you're right. It is uh, the um, the US buyers are going to be more than they were last year. I mean, you think about it, as you were saying that, Jonathan, do you remember? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that this London screenings was a sort of an apology event for hungover, tired buyers to straggle down from Liverpool into London for, for three or four days. And now you've got buyers in London for just under two weeks in some cases. And then when you think about how that's grown in just two years, uh, as you say, when it went from a bit virtual to fully in person, that's quite extraordinary. Has any other market grown at that sort of rate? I doubt it. So it's going to attract a lot of attention from maybe other other markets across the year, how this is done. And it's sort of like a, like what you were saying, Sarah, there's a lot of, it's a different way of pitching your content, isn't it? I always felt a bit like, do they really want to hear another pitch? When people turn up for the Wednesday party, I sort of almost want to make it feel like, it's all right, you can go at ease now. We're not going to go mad pitching at you. Just relax and enjoy it. If we happen to get a pitch in, then it's job done. But it's um, we want to try and make the buyers feel like it's not just a, a 24-hour pitching event you know every day of the week so i think they're going to need a little bit of light and shade and and this sort of event the way we're the way it's working across the week should mean that they yeah they have a little bit of downtime because i know these poor buyers you know that's their job but i sort of feel as though you've got to give them a little bit of a break now and again and um you know get them to let off steam and if you just show a show reel and and meet them and talk to them that's enough but i i like the fact that there are plenty of people in either side that we can see and so yeah, me and the, my colleagues seem to be pretty busy, actually. You mentioned the um, growing impact, growing presence of the US studios. Obviously, the market's changed significantly in the last few years, having gone through a period where they've been withholding rights to their own programs for their own streaming services. They're now returning to the licensing business. I think Disney's uh, present for the first time this year alongside NBC Universal, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Fox, uh, Sony Pictures and Lionsgate, now the owner of E1. So, you know, how has that changed the game for you considerably in some ways? I, th I think that they've all seen the volume of people attending, uh, buyers attending as alternatives to other events, which is why they're turning up. What I'm interested in to see is how that then impacts their LA screenings, you know, because obviously that's only, what, three months later, or two and a half months later. Um, and, you know, and that used to be the event to go to for many, many buyers, partly because of the, uh, as I understand it, the parties as well as the, uh, the screenings. So, so it intrigues me to see how they will play their activity alongside the LA screenings and whether there's certain things they're going to show here that may be more focused on certain aspects of the market and certain things they hold back for them um, as well. Yeah, I suppose timing, you're right. It'll be timing of their pitches. But I still think because of the because of the decline of MIP TV, LA screenings will still be strong. I think that's caught in a bit of a squeeze 
MIP TV. So I'm not sure. People still, so there's a lot, there's a head of steam behind LA screenings, it seems to me. So I think that will still be strong. But maybe not like it used to be. You're right. It used to go over two weeks, more or less. Apart from this London screenings event, everyone's trying to squeeze things into a, few, into a fewer days. Whereas this thing has got getting bigger, you know, you know, overlapping into the weeks before and afterwards. I mean, hopefully, you know, you've got to look at it in a looking at it in a positive light. It can only be a good thing that we've got Americans coming here for and attracting, a, you know, different buyers, more buyers for their content. I mean, the as long as there's enough buyers here to, for them to split, so that they can they're not taking people away from our events, which my understanding is is the case that they you know buyers are sending a bigger cohort so that some will go to you know x and others will go to y so we hopefully will be we will all be covered but it's it can only be a positive thing that the market is getting bigger and better it's a question of how well it is organized across the week and you know i'm sure next year it'll probably be in into a second week formally certainly a lot of the australians have said to me why why are we all squeezed into four and a half days yeah and it's interesting that well you also i think you know sarah's a point you made before we all started talking about you know this event is effectively free for the buyers yes they have to travel and they've got to sort out accommodation uh, and the, as is the la screenings those are effectively free for them as well you know as against other markets where they are paying costs to attend as a buyer so you know this is an event which probably uh, has some economic sense to people attending as well, if you see what I mean, which, which is a good way to run it, you know. What about the the sort of the broader dynamic that it speaks to, however, the, the shift that we've seen in the industry from the studios, as I say, withholding rights to their programming for their streaming services to now, um, you know, focusing on extracting licensing value from that that content and returning to the licensing business, you're all independent distributors, You've been having to sort of navigate these uh, changing strategies and the sort of ripple effect, I suppose, that they have on on the marketplace in which you operate as well. So, you know, what are your sort of thoughts on that and how's that changing business for you? Well, Sarah and, Sarah, I'll say Sarah and Jonathan will know more because they, they you're working in scripted more than I am and I'm not working scripted at all. But if you remember, with an uns- with a independent unscripted distributor, you always had to try and navigate the paths in between the big output deals that have been done by the studios and the big broadcasters. Now, I don't know what how what you two feel. Um, there's there's much less enthusiasm for those output deals. They may not even exist as much. So it's much more of a level playing field. So much, it, hopefully, it's much easier for you to sell your scripted versus them rather than having to cope with. The content itself, plus the fact it's inside an output deal. I don't know whether you see that or not. Well, yeah, I, I think so. I, I, you know, certainly the idea of output deals or those massive package deals being required mm. is diminished, both for the studios and the bigger indies. Um, and you know, I think people are far more, particularly with limited budgets, are far more precious about trying to find the programming they think is going to rate. You know, and ratings is is key in, in a challenged market for advertising as well. So, you know, if you've got the right programming for your buyers, they will buy it. The other thing which I think the the indies, uh, you know, have as an advantage and is something we should all maintain is being flexible and fast moving. You know, you know, studios obviously will, you know, have much higher budget programming than we can maybe be representing. Um, But they're also bigger machine, uh, you know, and. I think the success of any indie business that you know is operating at that moment comes from being fast moving and flexible and building relationships where 
buyers see the value of what they're bringing to them. Um, and I think the studios have to sort of reconnect uh, with some of those buyers a little bit more than they have been before. If if those buyers are their own studio channels or owned by them or a related studio, that's going to be easier. But I think with some of the more independent channels or public broadcasters, the studios now have to reconnect where they've not really been in business for a few years. So we have to continue to show our value as being, you know, understanding their programming needs, being fast moving, being flexible and, you know, and making it work for the buyer, as it were. And what about the <clears throat> fact that we've seen also the streamers kind of relax their position on rights to some degree as well? You know, has that been welcome change as far as you're concerned and you know we're, we're hearing lots of talk about the co-production marketplace opening up like never before as well but at the same time you reference the fact budgets have been squeezed we've obviously had a, a hollywood strikes taking place in the u.s last year so there's a lot of moving parts going on there yeah it's all good news if they're coming here they're just increasing the profile of of what we do as well and so having the bigger businesses here is attracting all the bigger broadcasters, even bigger ones, more of them, as Sarah was saying, you know, there's bigger teams from bigger channels coming over. So I think um, it doesn't trickle down to me at all or to Bossa Nova, but it may do differently to Abacus and HTI. It might be different for you guys, but I I sort of think uh, I just welcome it. I think um, if they're now back in the game a lot more and they're not, their services aren't taking the um, content first, then it's great. I mean, uh, you know, it just makes the market a bit more um, stimulating and a bit more buoyant. It can't be bad for us. Yeah, no, it's, it's a buoyant market and it's, you know, it's always been very competitive and it's a question of just moving moving with the times and being nimble um, as the competition changes and, and move and the market moves. But it's, you know, we welcome competition. It's always been there. It's good, as Jonathan says, that the output deals and those large, huge package deals are are definitely few and far between but then you have got these huge great big groups that um you know add a different level of competition certainly for getting content as well as for selling it I think the other thing you need to remember is also there's sort of certain regulation in markets which continues to support our programming so you know the streamers in europe are now having to comply with this 30 percent european programming so, you know, obviously they have a lot of local production themselves as well, but they are having to acquire from other parties European programming, which includes UK programming, to make sure that they comply with these quota systems that are coming in. And, you know, these quotas also exist, you know, in other places like Germany for free TV and for Mediatek and so on and elsewhere. So, you know, there's still the, this programming has uh, that we all sell, which isn't the US studio programming, uh, you know, has this need, both from a quality and a storyline perspective, but also from some of the regulation perspectives that are out there. I think it was PAC's most recent sort of UK exports report that, that came out at the end of last year, um, you know, and was portraying a very positive past 12 months um, for the marketplace. But as you referenced, Jonathan, you know, there has been obviously a continued squeeze going on. Budgets are pressed indeed across the board. There is contraction more broadly, not just among streamers, but broadcasts in general. So um, how's that shaping things for you? Well, I mean, I like, I mean, one of the interesting things I see in this market uh, at the moment is obviously there's less commissioning. Um, we're all aware there is less commissioning, particularly, you know, we're aware of Channel 4 and people like Channel 5 having slowed down in some of that space, which does actually mean there's less programming for distributors to pick up. So we're having to work harder to, you know, help help 
get programming made through those code prototype opportunities uh, as well. Uh, and I know Paul is also very successful in that space of getting pre-buys and co-pros and so on. Um, and so, it's, you know, so at the same time, you expect to see as a result of the less commissioning is potentially an uptake in distribution in acquisition, because if you're not commissioning, what are you going to fill your slots with? And admittedly, you know, some of it is more reruns, um, but a lot of it is acquisition, um, uh, you know, which because people need to fill the slots and acquisition is lower than commissioning. Um, acquisition budgets in some cases have been cut still alongside commissioning and reallocated, but in many cases, you know, they are being more active to fill those slots. What just is the slight sort of conundrum is that if people are commissioning less, there's actually less program for people to acquire when they want to acquire more. So normally that should push up prices, but we'll wait and see on that. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the pipeline is definitely um, a much skinnier pipeline, but then the way the buyers have been buying for the last few years has changed anyway. I think, I don't know whether you all agree, it's um, they're much more forensic in their buying techniques now, probably yeah. because of market forces. So yeah, it's funny, the word co-production, which I, you know, I think is so, it, it makes it sound as though we're all smoking galois and sort of sitting back on chairs. Um, it's just such a, um, it's intellectualizing something that is just basically piecing the financing together. And it's yeah. just, just pre-sales. Would you, look at a, would you look at a rough cut? Oh, God, it's a co-pro. No, you're just going to look at a rough cut and give us some notes, thanks. That's it. But we we like to just jargonize it to make sometimes, you know, us feel much more grand about it. But, yeah, we're just flipping well, putting the finance together. And, unfortunately, the last 21 years, I've had no choice, or 22 years. This is the only way I've been able to put things together anyway. I think it's a bit like a stuck a stuck clock. You know, every 12 hours, I tell the right time. Around about now, everyone's coming around and saying, oh, God, co-productions, yeah. Well, it has most a lot of broadcasters have been doing this for the last 20 odd years anyway but um yeah. it's just it is very in vogue at the moment but yeah it's just it's just program financing and channel four and uh, a lot of others have come in the last few years and it made it work for them pretty well channel five in the uk as well so uh but i think it's just the more higher profile channels have come in which has probably pushed the word co-pro to the top of the jargon more usn channels yeah Course, yeah, you know, they, they used to be very, you know, concerned in retaining rights, and now they are looking at more cost-effective ways to do things, which brings you into that pre-buy stroke co-pro model. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, interesting that you mentioned a couple of other big talking points that we need to uh, need to address. I think MIP TV you mentioned uh, a little while ago there, Paul. You know that market has been in decline i think it's fair to say for for a number of years in, in part because of the absence of of, of, a, of a heavy u.s presence um, and we're now seeing that u.s presence very much being felt during the london tv screenings and there was a report which surfaced recently suggesting that rx france the organizers of mip tv might be looking to shift that event from Cannes to london thoughts on that please everybody if you have them and want to share. I think in the in the green room earlier, uh, the three of us thought it was an amazing idea, didn't we? We thought we, <laughs> we, thought we couldn't wait for this to happen. Oh, and then let, let all the buyers, as, as Sarah was saying, you know, let's all let all the buyers suddenly get stuck with a 1,500 euro uh, tariff to pay. I mean, I don't understand where that's coming from at all. And I think, uh, yes, it is horribly competitive London Screenings Week. People are going to be... Uh, cheap by jail events are going to be clashing into other events but that's the nature of it's not like the old genteel ways of distribution where people sat around the table and um, maybe the big five or the big five or six do 
but um it's just hardcore capitalism and i think um i think it's a little bit reversing there's a there's a cliche in here about cart before the horse somewhere um and it just doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to make any sense to me at all i don't want to see mip tv die i really don't i'd love it to find some sort of niche but sometimes it doesn't help itself as an event no, it's an incredibly expensive market to go to for what it is. It's been in decline for many, many years. Um, and it is now really considered just a European market, I would say. We, you know, like and many distributors will send people there rather than have an actual stand. It costs so much money. And I'd rather spend that money on sending my team out on, on sales trips, as I'm sure you guys would as well. But it's... I think I think that it will dip quite significantly this year from what I can read into what's going on from from my team but it's you know we'll see what happens next year but I think for for RX I mean they haven't spoken to us as they probably wouldn't because I think they're probably just talking to the the super indies at this point but I don't think there's room for it anymore you know, you could spend, buyers spend their entire year as as sellers do, traveling around the world to on sales trips, on, on to markets. You can go to a market every month of the year if you wanted. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's got to be a bit of give and they've got to be a bit more inventive on how they reinvent themselves rather than just muscling in on this one. Jonathan, did you have a thought? This, this is the frustration because, you know, it is an event which does have some value with those European buyers, as Paul was saying, and uh, but they seem to be sort of closed-minded to reinventing themselves in an effective way. And it just sums it up. I, mean, I remember a conversation, you know, last year where I was pointing the, you know, reduced numbers out. And they said, oh, we can hold your pricing for the next year. And I said, well, you should be reducing it because, mm. you know, you've got less people attending. And as a result, we are sending a lot less people to MIP TV than we might have done two years ago, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. Um it's a much smaller team attending. So I think they just need to have a really big rethink. Um, and I don't think it is moving into London at the same time as another market that people will be focused on. The other thing is, is that it's the different way we launch shows now, isn't it? I mean, um, I was very black and white a few years ago, probably like a lot of other people. Launch late MIP, launch late MIPCOM. You don't do that anymore now. Launch late London, maybe launch late, I don't know, when you're doing your trips between February and June, you know, um, I think you said it you're absolutely right, Sarah. It's all about the trips. That the it's the territory visits. They are the most important things that we do. If we look back at last year, they're the things that glean the most business. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. We know that. Or um, so I think we just have to. Uh, they they just go hand in hand. And there, as as you said as well, there are just too many events now, and something's got to give. And it's funny. You look at a couple of years ago. There were some events without naming them that were nailed on part of people's agendas they're now they've sort of faded and others have come up so um it's funny it's a very changing landscape the nothing is apart from mipcom and london screenings what else is a must attend you know um well i i i think actually some of these very local focus markets yeah. have have demonstrated value you know um budapest uh yeah. has always demonstrated value because you get those people where it's not too expensive to travel from that area and it's two to three days it's not you know anything longer mit cancun you know we are attending jonathan uh warsaw you know we'll interview the first time we're seeing as an interesting one to try out and see how it works yeah. um you know so we even we even attended mip africa for a first time um 
last year and actually found it very valuable because most of those buyers hadn't made it to MIPCOM and, and, and so on. So I think actually those lower cost, locally focused, shorter time markets, you know, beyond, as Paul says, you know, uh, screenings and MIPCOM, you know, they generate real value because, you know, they are effectively, you can get hour long meetings rather than half hour meetings. You can see people in their own environment as well. Mm-hmm. And you actually, the buyers appreciate you taking, making that trip to their own territory, as it were, much like sales trips. Sarah, you mentioned the word super indie and uh, one of the super indies, one of the original founders of the London TV screenings, all three media. We can't obviously have a conversation without talking about that £1.15 billion deal that we'll see them being acquired by Redbird IMI. That's the uh, the venture capital business that's, that's being sort of spearheaded by former CNN boss Jeff Zucker. We've known that something's been coming for, for a long time, ITV, Banerjee, others have been in discussions to uh, to buy that company, but um, obviously that's going to be a major talking point for this year's screenings and uh, just wondering what your, your thoughts are on that and the effects that's going to have. Good news, isn't it? It's good news. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably good news for the producers that are represented by them that they're going into their catalogue is not increasing at this point. You know, I think if they had become part of Banerjee or part of ITV, it would have been a, a very different kind of way forward for 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 all three and for specifically for all three international. But, you I know, see. it's we'll wait and see. You know, I don't think their competition to us is going to going to change. That's a good team. As I well. think it's a positive sale for the market because, you know, they're going to obviously I'm sure they're going to look at their cost base, but they're not going to be getting rid of everybody who's a duplicate because it's not a duplicate. It's a, you know, you get a, you get an asset sale and you get what I call a positive sale. And this is a positive sale. I guess, you know, if it had gone to ITV or Ballinger, all three of us would have moved up one place in the broadcast distributor survey. And that's about <laughs> it, really. You know. Um, you know, so but but apart from that, you know, I I, I think now you, mentioned, you mentioned it's a really bad idea. Then in that case, <laughs> but I think you know, from an employment perspective and from a producer perspective, you know, they should, you know, um, the staff and the producers should continue to get you know the support and focus they need, which with a sale to another distributor that may not have happened. And I'm, I know this sounds a bit obsequious, but I like I like the team, all three, all the people I know within the group, within all three media, all international. There are, and everyone does. You know, they're a very popular bunch, and I sort of wanted to see that team remain intact because I think they are a good advert for for the UK indie scene, uh, yeah, and they, they do only good things. So I thought, yeah. Uh, yeah, from that point of view, I didn't want to see the. It's a rather cynical, you know, move to see them swallowed up into something else. Was just feel doesn't feel terribly positive you know as you say it's as you said it's not a not an asset sale so i like that i think that's a positive thing yeah you know you just got to think that you know again you know all three media every year is recognized as the distributor that other distributors most admire in various surveys and that's reflects with the quality of what they've been doing as an organization so i you know i concur with that you know i think you know it, it is a, a business we wouldn't want to see swallowed up you know even if they are a competitor um, is it reflective too of the increasing power of Middle Eastern money in the marketplace as well at a time when we're seeing the market being squeezed? But as we've seen in sports and football, that that uh, Middle Eastern influence is kind of growing. Is that something you think is going to continue? Where the where are the sums of money? The sums of money of um, you know people are looking for pots from other parts of the world now, aren't they? 
So uh, that's a lot of there's a lot of light shining on the Middle East at the moment because of the cash coming out of it. So I, I guess, and I guess the cycles, isn't there? You know, there's, you have the Chinese money was quite dominant for a while. That's obviously had some restrictions on what can leave China itself. You know, so the Middle Eastern money is coming dominant. You know, um, at one point Russian money was quite significant, and for obvious reasons, that's um, been restricted. So. I think the cycles, but yeah, you know, I mean, it is clearly something that's very active in the market, particularly, as you say, in a challenged market where, you know, the economies that money's coming from still have a lot, some other revenue sources, so we say. I think I think we're all examining where the money is coming from more than we used to. Um, I think it's fair to say that. And I think, you know, as as businesses, we've all, we all have a responsibility to examine that paper trail or funding trail. I think, you know, inevitably, just the way society is as well. Everyone is way more aware of these things than they used to be. It's a shame that they don't spend as much money buying programming into that region. I don't know about you two, but we still yeah. <laughs> it's not one of the wealthier markets to sell into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just on that point, you know, where are the territories that are proving the most exciting for you at the moment? Are there any in particular where you're sort of seeing growth outstripping other markets? I don't know. It's it's quite. It's, it, I always sort of find that that question quite difficult when we do all these surveys year on year, because you know the US is always going to be well, not always going to be, but it has been for a very long time and will be for quite a while forward. Has been is you know is the most valuable territory to sell into once you get the right deal there. But you know on a day to day basis for us, you know the Western Europe and and Australia is you know are are the the most important territories for us. I think, you know, there's always, you know, there are territories all over the world which are exciting and different, especially when you get format sales and you're, you know, you you get a one of your shows remade into somewhere quite interesting that you don't tend to do a lot of business with. But it's, you know, as as far as making money and getting our shows out there, that's that's not changing. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, pipe, you know, pipeline in and pipeline out. I think um, Australia and the and the US. You know, um, we've we've got lucky with the US recently, and for for our for our revenue base, getting lucky makes a quite significant increase on your revenue year on year. Then, but um, um, yeah, the the US because I think cable is still alive and well there, despite this the uh, the predominance of of big streamers. It's um, the traditional channels are doing well in Australia pipeline in pipeline out it's been happening for me for 20 years you know from the, you know that um 7 Angus Ross give me border security and abandoned engineering and these ideas and I get um I get a lot of briefs and a lot of content from there but I'm also selling a lot into there and as, as Sarah said yeah Western Europe it's hard to look beyond there we're always trying to the 80 20 rule is is alive and well though and it doesn't seem to the composite parts of the 80 20 rule haven't really moved around as much as we'd like to think they have you know it is still you know if you average it out over a few years it is still those regular markets that are doing it yeah i i think what we've seen in the market in the sales market is the increasing localization of some of these tv channels so the asian market and the latin american markets are becoming more and more localized in terms of the programming that get played and get commissioned and get bought while you know the western european and australian and north american markets and uk markets remain more comparable in interest and taste for you know historical reasons 
But I think, you know, the, the, the Latin, certainly Latin America and Asia is becoming, uh, you know, a, a, a far more locally produced content market because they have the means and the desire and the audience to do so. So it's about making your programming fit around that. I think the other sort of big learning we're having, is, you know, is program that this industry is becoming more and more ratings driven because of the challenges. And, you know, people flick through EPGs, people flick through streaming services. So it's how you catch people's eye. And obviously a great program catches someone's eye, but also you need, uh, you know, a good title that catches somebody's eye and a good piece of key art that catches somebody's mm. eyes. So, you know, we've done a lot of work with Amazon on True Crime recently, and they've particularly emphasized as the importance of coming up with a really good title and a really good piece of key art. Otherwise, people just flick across. So it's, you know, thinking almost broader than just the programme itself in some sense. Um, it'd be great to finish on a positive note. I want to hear about all the things that you're excited about, but, you know, we've touched on it a couple of times. There's obviously seismic changes going on in terms of sort of job cuts that we've seen. You mentioned Amazon there. Amazon Studios is making big cutbacks. Channel 4 here in the UK, Paramount, there are plenty of others as well. Um, we've seen a couple of smaller independent production companies going out of business in, in, in the UK as well. You said earlier on, Jonathan, you know, you were hoping that this London screenings could be a sort of uh, uh, an indication of, you know, a, a sort of a, a brighter coming period. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts on that, given the backdrop that I've just described in rather gloomy tones, I have to say? Sorry about that. But um, that is the reality we're dealing with, right? Well, look, I, I don't think there'll be so many attendees if there wasn't going to be some form of positive outcome from it. I do think they'll be slower to make their decisions. It's not going to be, we've screened it, we're going to send you the offer the next day. It's going to people be very deliberate and cautious and sensible in, in their approach. And they'll take a look at things. And, you know, it used to be that programming sold on a much shorter cycle from when it was first launched than it does now. But that's been happening for years anyway. But I do think, you know, people have got to the point where with the strikes and with the budget challenges, you know, they are probably in need of new programming. And that's what we're here to provide them with. And as long as you've got things that are adaptable to different countries and the storyline works and can be understood and, uh, you know, there's the market there. Um, so, you know, I'm actually excited. I'm excited about the number of RSVPs we've had. And I'm sure Paul is and Sarah mentioned earlier, she is, you know, um, that, you know, that there are a lot of people attending here. And they all want to see programming from independent partners, which is great. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's almost like you've got to kickstart the market. You know, I, I, I'm sort of fed up with people saying, oh, my God, isn't it? Oh, my God, so awful. Oh, isn't it terrible? Well, we're all working in it and we've all got an opportunity where we are. Yes, we do have to probably um, still dial that risk factor up a little bit here and there on certain projects. We're just going to have to do that. We have to trust our own judgment. We've all been around long enough to know we're going to make mistakes, but we have to hope that the, the decisions that we make on projects that we believe in over deliver and the other ones we sort of cover up for that don't work. And that's the way it's going to have to be. But, you know, I, I worked out, even though I've got way less content coming through every six months, I'm very happy with that. Never thought I would ever say that. I'm way happy. I've probably got 10% of the sheer hours, but we're growing at a faster rate then TCB was growing at the same uh, stage of its life. So what does that tell you? It just concentrate on what you've got, grow your franchises and wait for, you know, uh, wait for the big noisy shows to come along. But we're going to have to try and get them made and get them over the line, which is a right pain in the ass sometimes. But this is what we have to do. We've got no choice. So it's, uh, um, I saw that I'm positive, really positive as well. 
But I'm also thinking it's a long game and we can't get too sort of anxious about lack of content coming through. It will eventually, as, as Jonathan said, the market is going to need it. And I just say, as he also just said, they're all coming here for a reason, not just to sit around and say it's nice to see you. They are going to have their sort of buying mode on. That's it. Sarah, a final thought from you? Um, well, I would say that people are, one of the positives coming out is I think buyers are much more open to looking further afield for their content. So whereas, you know, historically it was, you know, American scripted or British factual, I think it's people are more open to looking at, you know, different different home territories for their content you know we're launching a new comedy from New Zealand which is fantastic absolutely we're really excited about it and I'm you know very optimistic it will do brilliantly well because it's not now seen as something well you know only the Americans or only the British can make comedy so I think that's that's really heartwarming. There is a lot of overseas content. You know, we're obviously completely um, au fait. Everybody is with watching drama with with subtitles, you know, and that's took a while to come in. And I think now with Factual and with, you know, Paul, I know you work a lot with, with Australian content. And I think it's, it's people are, buyers are much more open than they were five years ago to look at content from overseas which is you know as things are harder here it's it's very welcome great well thanks very much for making some time all of you today really appreciate you joining us ahead of what is no doubt going to be a very busy week for you all so um thank you sarah thank you jonathan thank you paul and uh hopefully see you on the circuit yes see you guys thank you Jonathan Ford, Paul Heaney and Sarah Tong speaking with me about the London screenings. Of course, turmoil around the event is nothing compared to events elsewhere in the world. Here's Nico Franks to introduce our next segment. This Saturday, February 24th, marks the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the largest attack on a European country since World War II. As news reports detail war-weary Ukrainians enduring as Russia's invasion drags on, the local film and TV industry has shown similar resilience. Katerina Laskari is founder at Kiev and Paris-based Space Production, which last year managed to film three TV series in Kiev during near constant shelling and a shortage of actors and workers as more and more people were called up to fight on the front line. I spoke to Katerina about landmark Ukrainian titles such as Art in War, those who stayed in her car, and Mstislav Chernov's horrifying eyewitness documentary, 28 Days in Mariupol, tipped by many for success at next month's Oscars. Katerina also discusses how the Ukrainian broadcast landscape and the media habits of the Ukrainian people have changed since the war began, while the necessity to partner up with international players to get things made is turning Ukrainian producers into European co-production experts. So we're speaking very close to the second anniversary of the full-scale war in Ukraine. It's obviously a very uh, tragic and sad anniversary. It's incredibly impressive how much production in Ukraine has not returned to normal, but has been happening. So could you just give me a kind of brief overview of maybe more in the, in the past year, how production has, has been going? Yeah, actually, uh, I can tell you, Nico, that for Ukrainian television, to 2023 uh, actually became uh, the first, the second year of full-scale war, 
And at the same time, the first uh, year of a real reflection of, of what happened, because the first year, let's say, it was a rather shocking thing. And I guess all the Ukrainian producers and all the media and even the market of uh, advertisement and all the media holdings um, were trying to understand what happened and try to adapt to a new situation. Yeah. And uh, even we were in a way trying to maybe, I don't know, find a new a mission or a new role in media. Uh, to give you an example, many, many fiction producers uh, started to film documentaries, for example, not being documentary producers before. And even our production company, we made a co-production film with uh, Germany called Art in War for RT channel for Germany and France, and many, many more examples. And uh, my partner, Daria Legonifialko, she created with many more, with six more producers, uh, an organization of Ukrainian producers, and dedicated herself to a documentary uh, activities yeah, in, during the first year of war. But actually now what happened uh, in 2023, we have already adapted to life, I would say, yeah, to these new conditions, yeah, when still it's possible to shoot, although the circumstances are not that easy, but anyway, there is a new wave of life, I would say, a new wave of uh, organizing processes. And we came back to the to our familiar processes and familiar projects, I would say. And of course, now Ukraine is starting to develop a lot of new co-productions, which never happened before in this uh, in this, uh, I would say, manner, yeah, and in a new, I would say, world, and in, in a new manner of making uh, new contacts, in making new ideas, in creating new ideas, which could be interesting for few territories simultaneously for Ukraine and someone, someone else. So actually, I would say that this year we can definitely call this year a year of a recovery of the media market, advertising market and a big boom uh, in the film industry. Two years ago, the TV kind of broadcasting sector in Ukraine was obviously decimated and some channels went out of business. What's happening in the broadcast landscape in Ukraine at the moment? Are there new channels that have arrived and how much commissioning is actually happening? Actually, the picture is, uh, from one side, is very similar to pre-war, but from another side, is a little bit different because now uh, we have a huge holding, which is called Star Starlight Media, which is actually our main partner, our space production's main partner, which is a clear leader. And Starlight Media wasn't such a big, huge, clear leader before because the picture was more, you know, like uh, uh, in very equal parts, I would say, because uh, one plus one... Uh, T, uh, Channel Ukraine, Media Holding Ukraine, and Starlet Media were through three big whales, I would say, yeah, like three giants. But now, actually, the picture has changed uh, in, in a really very radical manner because uh, Channel Ukraine and Media Holding Ukraine just disappeared from the landscape because um, Ukrainian oligarch Rina Bakhmetov actually he decided to close his media activities, like at all or all, um, because ma his main business activities were all located uh, on the very east and on the very uh, south of Ukraine. 
So after these tragical events which happened in Mariupol and after the full occupation of south and east of Ukraine, now actually his business, business activities went down in a very serious manner. So he made a very tragical, I would say, decision for him because he really liked this media business as well. And he had great plans for developing VOD platforms in Ukraine as well. Uh, but unfortunately, this group disappeared at all. And nowadays, actually, Starlet Media is a quite and clear leader with a share of more than 25%. And one plus one group uh, owned by Kolomoisky has a share of 17% now at the time. And Intergroup is the smallest share and the smallest group now. But uh, from my information, I know that Intergroup is going to develop uh, themselves in a very aggressive, I would say, manner. So we are all waiting uh, for new contracts and new, uh, new launches from Intergroup. And how do the schedules reflect what day-to-day -day life is like now in Ukraine? Actually, the, the schedules of media channels and media groups uh, go into two different directions. So one direction is channels which dedicate their schedule totally to a TV marathon, yeah, to a news marathon. Uh, so it's like as if you watch news 24 7, yeah. And uh, another direction is still a very entertainment and very, I would say, light television in a way, which uh, helps the viewers in a way uh, relax, uh, to reflect a little bit like all the events that are going on and which are happening and uh, just watch some movies, you know, so some very, very slight and very easy, easy watching, I would say, content is still there. And uh, I would say that even this entertainment content brings even more shares because people are really tired of war is tendency number one. And tendency number two is that Ukrainian viewers always prefer Telegram channels. So Telegram is very popular social media in Ukraine. So I would say that even not only youngsters, but even adult people who want to know some news or like to be very much on a, in the top of the news, what was going on, usually prefer to go to Telegram, to Telegram channel, scroll, then like learn some news, just reading some highlights, and then come back to a usual television just to relax the brain or to go to a um, to a streamer, uh, in, it could be simultaneously a worldwide streamer like Netflix Ukraine, for example, or it could be a local streamer like Migogo, and then just have some fun, watching some series, watching some films. So I would say that the resource of getting used and just a normal television is very much divided. And how are the different genres reflecting day-to-day -day life? Yeah, of course, definitely. I can tell you that documentary is a new world. Yeah, documentary is a new black in Ukraine, let's say. Yeah, because um, even uh, one of Ukrainian documentaries by Mstislav Chernov is Oscar nominated this year. Yeah, which is called 20 Days in Mariupol, which is really very tragical, very emotional, very hard watch, watch, watched. Yeah, uh, but at the same time, it brought... Uh, the producers over two million hryvnias is uh, in a, it is I would say it's a pre precedent for documentary films, which never happened before because usually and normally viewers pre prefer not to watch documentaries in the cinema at all, all, all. And coming back to a normal television, I would say that it's more or less 
very um, very close to European watching. Yeah, so uh, detective and crime dramas, which uh, we are very much belong to, is still on the top. Yeah, so viewers would choose detective story and crime drama for for evening viewing. Yeah, for the family viewing as as well. So uh, comedies are still there. Uh, of course, soap operas and melodramas are still there. Um, and uh, I would say that a lot of people now prefer to watch uh, in, and entertain entertain themselves uh, films without uh, without dubbing or without voiceover, because it's like a new trend as well. Because you know that this inner migration and this migration to me Europe or to other countries actually brought some learning of new languages. And I know a lot of families who prefer to watch films now at home without dubbing or subtitling. So I think it will be a new interesting trend for Ukrainian viewers. And um, uh, and of course, a lot of a, a lot of new co-productions, which is which is a very interesting trend for Ukraine as well. Because actually, um, I, I'm very happy for my colleagues uh, who produced uh, in her car for France Television, which is distributed by Gamon Group, uh, which will be, uh, from my point of view, a huge success in Europe and Ukraine. Uh, the premiere of the show is planned for 25th of February at STB Channel, which is a Starlight Media Group as well. Uh, and also, um, uh, Film UA produced uh, Those Who Stay show for Netflix directly. So it is the first, the very first premiere from a Ukrainian producer to a global Netflix, which is actually something that, which never happened before, I would say. And, and it's a it's a new, a very fresh trend, which actually gives us a lot of opportunities and, of course, a, a lot a lot of new uh, challenges. I would say for Ukrainian producers and for Ukrainian media in general. I can actually add that one of the trends is a Ukrainian films, yeah, like the Ukrainian like real cinematography. I would say not just TV series, because something incredible happens nowadays and. I know that people, even during COVID, yeah, even uh, during COVID and uh, after that, during blackout, so during our first uh, awful winter, people still uh, preferred to go to the cinema, especially in the big cities. So sometimes there were no, there was no electricity, but at the same time, people were waiting, I don't know, for half, a, half an hour or even an hour to finish the film they wanted to watch like in the evening or during the weekend. So it's a very strong trend on Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian produced and Ukrainian made and Ukrainian oriented films. And few films, they just uh, like battled the, the catch box and just made a, a, a great success. For example, Luxembourg, Luxembourg, Luxembourg or Pamphyr which was a very popular at many European festivals and uh, really impressed Ukrainian audience, or Shedrik, for example. Um, and one of the most interesting premiere of the last year, it was an animation film called Mavka, which actually was produced before for many, during a long period, period of time, like for several years. It was released at last in 2023. It was released in few European countries, including Poland and France, if I remember right, maybe Germany, maybe maybe Baltics as well. But at the very end, it became like a pure leader of the day, I would say. Yeah, and even at Ukrainian television, it was a pure leader and absolute, absolute leader uh, in, in cinema field, as well as Dovush which actually was released in more than 20 countries, if I remember well. 
for screen and uh, and of course and of course nothing to add to uh, 20 days in Mariupol, which I, I I have a feeling it will it will get um, it will get Oscar, especially after the um, especially after this prize of guild uh, of American guild, yeah, of directors and producers, which which happened like two two days ago. So it is already the best film uh, from the point of view of direct director's vision. So like many, many chances for Oscar for Ukrainian documentary film uh, this year. So the main trend I would say is we are in a very uh, serious situation of attention of the whole world still. And of course we have to use this opportunity being a media, being producers and generating ideas and creating like uh, content. I think it's a very, very important moment for us to show our face, to sh to show our voice to the whole world, and actually to become an interesting industry, not only for the inner market, but for the whole world. Do you feel like the international community has been supportive of Ukrainian producers and partnerships? Yeah, I think a lot. And also I feel another trend, not only this uh, openness for Ukrainian pro projects here, yeah, because I can give you many, many more examples. Let's say uh, TVP in Poland co-produced uh, the voice season for One Plus One and still for TVP. Or, for example, uh, Estonian channel uh, co-produced uh, a series with Starlight Media and many, many more examples. But a very fresh trend, which I really even feel on my skin is actually European co-producers are now in a very similar situation in a way because actually the uh, financial and the um, budget situation, let's say, at the channels is not very good. So I have a feeling, and that's what actually I'm discussing with my colleagues from European market because me and my partner Daria, we are part of uh, and members of European Producers Club. So we we are in a very strong contact with a lot of European producers every day. So a very fresh trend is a co-production is a new model actually of a production because nobody can gather one budget, you know, at the same time from one broadcaster, or one streamer, or it's a super big luck, or it's something incredible. Yeah, so of course you can be lucky enough or maybe professional enough to get like a huge budget from Amazon or Apple. But if you are a TV series producer, as I am, you do not uh, gather a budget from one source. So you cannot just go to ZDF or to France Television or to Rhine. You have to go to all three channels and try to find uh, find an idea which can fit to all the audiences, which is a super huge challenge for all of us. Because first of all, it's the language topic and yeah, language issue, with, which is actually the, the most complicated, I would say, for the creators yeah, and for the producers. And secondly, because you have to find a story and the character and something that will you know, touch a few territories, which is not easy, yeah, because... Sometimes you can watch a, a series from Ukraine, like in her car, but it doesn't mean that it reflects to your audience. It doesn't mean that it's something that touches your audience directly. So you have to find like many, many more layers and many, many more universal characters. And that is a huge challenge, which actually we will face all of us in Eastern and Western Europe. We will face uh, in, the in the next, I guess, two years at, at least. Um, and uh, to the, we have an inner joke that actually now we are going to face this uh, this inner co-production even more, all of us, and Western Europe, uh, 
at last has to face Eastern Europe and really become one Europe, <laughs> even in the field of uh, producing and media and creating. And obviously there's so many incredible stories um, of human survival and humanity to originate out of Ukraine in, in the past couple of years. When you're developing projects, are you primarily focusing on those kinds of stories or are you eager to ensure that when producers and co-production partners having conversations with you, that it's not necessarily all about the war in Ukraine and that, that there's other stories that you're you're able to tell? I have a feeling that the trend is actually even vice versa. So I have a feeling this anti-war trend is stronger than creating stories from Ukraine. Although it is very important to have our strong voice and to tell the stories of uh, this horrible period and actually to find out even maybe in art industry how to battle together like our awful enemy. But from another side, I think that um, it's even uh, more challenging to create just entertainment stories from a very Ukrainian core. And that is why actually our mission, the mission of our company uh, is following Make Ukrainian Identity Bloom, which means for us that there is nothing connected directly to war and this horrible period. I would say that it is more about finding together like real characters from Ukraine, real stories, and some, something really touching for many, many people in the world, yeah, with a very Ukrainian heart. And I think it's a very challenging, and I feel it's a very challenging mission um, that is why our production company is much more focused on uh, non-war stories. Although we have um, a war script, which is called Music Under the Bombs, about a DJ from Europe who came back to Ukraine, uh, having Ukrainian roots, and is going to... It's a, a kind of modern Casablanca, I would say. It's a love triangle nowadays. But so it, it was it was our, I would say, um, our voice and our try to tell the story about war, but anyway, with a very modern and uh, young generated oriented um, direction. Uh, but many other stories we are developing now together with our European partners. For example, we have now two French co-producers who are great, like very much dedicated and uh, follow our ideas. And all the other stories are non-war and just have Ukrainian heart, Ukrainian core, Ukrainian geography or some uh, historical even touch. So I think it's even much more interesting to develop stories that uh, could um, inspire people, not just remind them about this tragical, uh, tragic, tragical period we are going through. Katerina Lascari speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode, but tune in for more interviews from the 2024 London TV screenings by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.